This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball. I'm joined today by Dr. Eric Geyer, one of our amazing pediatric neuro-ophthalmologists and a Mass Ioneer residency alum. Dr. Geyer, thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to discuss this case and all of the great teaching points that we learned along the way. Thank you so much for having me, Scylla. So I'll get right into the case. This was a case of a four-year-old girl who presented with a dilated pupil and vision loss. The patient woke up on the morning of presentation with trouble seeing and difficulty walking downstairs. Her mom noticed that her right pupil was dilated and commented that her eyes were not tracking. She also had some right eye pain when she looked up. On review of systems, she noted that over the last week as she fell asleep, her body felt wiggly and restless. She also endorsed some vague allergy symptoms that sounded like post-nasal drip. Otherwise, she had no recent infections, had not started any new medications, and all of her immunizations were up to date. Her medical history was unremarkable, and she had a family history of Hashimoto's thyroiditis in her grandmother. On exam, the right eye afferent visual function was notable for an acuity of 2150, She did have full colors, and she had a non-reactive 6-millimeter pupil. The efferent examination showed a right hypertropia and a large exotropia. Her motility exam was notable for a complete adduction deficit in the right and an infraduction deficit also in the right. The left eye motility exam was completely normal. So that's a lot to digest, but let's stop here and just talk about the motility exam. So on the motor or efferent side, this patient presented with both horizontal and vertical ophthalmoplegia, as well as medriasis on the right side. We see an incompetent exotropia that accompanies the limitation in a deduction. Since the eye does not reach the midline on duction testing, we would classify this as a complete deficit of adduction. The right hypertropia goes along with the infraduction deficit on that side. Identifying whether the vertical deviation is worse than abduction or adduction is key to identifying which vertical muscles are involved. The vertical rectus muscles have their primary action in abduction, whereas the obliques have their primary vertical action in adduction. In this case, It's somewhat difficult to assess this because a deduction is limited as well, but clearly the right infraduction deficit was worse in right right gaze compared to attempted left gaze. 
implicating dysfunction of the right inferior rectus muscle. Ophthalmoplegia involving the medial rectus and inferior rectus muscles, as well as the pupil, implicates involvement of the third cranial nerve, the ocular motor nerve. The acute onset is also suggestive of a paretic etiology, as opposed to a restrictive etiology involving the antagonists of the muscles we just mentioned. Great. So we know that the rectus muscles really have their effect in abduction, while the obliques have their effect in adduction. So I think that one of the things that really helps me to localize a lesion is to really sit down and think about the innervation of the nerve that I'm thinking of. So in this case, it's really the oculomotor nerve. And for me as a resident, it really helps to start with the very basics. And I just remind myself that the oculomotor nerve supplies seven essential muscles of the eye and the eyelid. And then I just try to think about how it divides into the superior and inferior divisions in the anterior cavernous sinus. So that also allows me to start to localize the lesion. And so if you know that that is where the superior and inferior division takes place, then you can start to think of the superior division of the oculomotor nerve, which supplies the superior rectus and the levator palpebrae. So when you see a lesion of the superior division, you really expect to see ptosis and limitation of superduction. And then the inferior division is pretty much responsible for everything else. So then I just go through everything else, which is the medial rectus, the inferior rectus, the inferior oblique, the ciliary muscle, and the pupillary sphincter. And those last two are the ones that I tend to glaze over sometimes, but the ones that you have to really think carefully about. So then when there's a lesion of the inferior division, I remind myself that I would expect to see medriasis, limitation of infraduction, and limitation of adduction, just like we saw in our patient. Our patient's presentation would certainly suggest selective involvement of the inferior division of the ocular motor nerve, given the apparent sparing of the levator and superior rectus functions. That said, it's important to always remember that ocular motor nerve dysfunction can manifest in a variety of ways. Incomplete ocular motor nerve paresis can manifest with partial or selective limitation of only some of the motility or what we call somatic functions of the nerve with or without pupillary involvement. That is why I was taught that unless there is complete somatic dysfunction and an unambiguously spared pupil, one must always neuroimage to exclude the possibility of a compressive lesion as the cause. The medical emergency that we're talking about here is a posterior communicating artery aneurysm, which could rupture and cause significant morbidity and mortality if not recognized quickly. That is why the clinical importance of identifying third nerve palsies is stressed so heavily in our training. In this case, the partial somatic manifestation as well as the pupillary involvement impose a, uh, together impose a responsibility on our part to exclude a compressive lesion as the cause. The third nerve nucleus, which contains the cell bodies of the motor neurons innervating the extraocular, motors, uh, extraocular muscles, is located in the dorsal midbrain. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I I remember being on my neuro-ophthalmology rotation and being asked, what's one thing that you want to take away from this? And I had said that I want to know when I need to neuroimage. And at the end of the rotation, I basically decided that I was nervous and wanted to image everyone just so that I don't miss these um, like pupil involving third nerve palsies or anything that... um, could be manifesting as something else, but in reality, it's a more dangerous compressive lesion. Um, but that's why it's so important for us to know the anatomy. So Dr. Geyer, do you think you can take us through the course of the oculomotor nerve starting at the nucleus? And maybe that will help us to um, localize lesions further. On the motor or efferent side, this patient presented with both horizontal and vertical ophthalmoplegia, as well as medriasis on the right. We see an incompetent exotropia that accompanies the limitation in adduction. Since the eye does not reach the midline on duction testing, we would classify this as a complete deficit of adduction. The right hypertropia goes along with the infraduction deficit on that side. Identifying whether the vertical deviation is worse in abduction or adduction is critical to identifying which vertical muscles are involved. The vertical muscles, uh, rectus muscles, have their primary action in abduction, whereas the obliques have their primary vertical action in adduction. All motor neurons are located on the same side as the muscles that they innervate, except for those of the superior rectus muscle, which cross from the contralateral side and the levator, uh, which are contained in a single midline cluster. Therefore, the unilateral, uh, a unilateral ocular motor nucleus lesion would produce ipsilateral third nerve signs with the exception of contralateral superduction limitation and bilateral or absentosis. The Eddinger-Westphal nucleus, which contains the preganglionic parasympathetic neurons that control the pupil and ciliary muscle, is located adjacent to the third nerve nucleus. So I just want to stop here and summarize these main points because I feel like not only are they important clinically, but when it comes to OCAP studying and um, repeat questions about patterns in anatomy, these are some very important clinical pearls. So the fibers from the superior rectus subnucleus are the fibers that cross. And then the levator palpebrae has just a single midline nucleus. So anytime you see bilateral ptosis or bilateral symptoms, you should really start to think about the levator single midline nucleus. That's right. So uh, now we can uh, discuss fascicular lesions. And then I want to stop you again, because I feel like I always forget what a fascicle is. And if you could just explain that for me and also for the audience, just as a reminder for all of us. Of course. So a fascicle is the portion of a peripheral nerve between the nucleus within the central nervous system, where the nerve exits the central nervous system. Uh, In the case of the third nerve, the motor neuron axons extend through the ventral midbrain, passing through several other important structures. Therefore, lesions that affect certain portions of the fascicle produce other neurologic signs and symptoms, and that's how we get the number of syndromes associated with fascicular third nerve palsy. Weber syndrome includes accompanying hemiparesis on the contralateral side due to involvement of the descending corticospinal tract in the ventral uh, cerebral peduncle. 
Benedict syndrome includes contralateral tremor due to involvement of the red nucleus and substantia nigra. And Nothnagel syndrome includes ataxia due to involvement uh, of the superior cerebellar penuncle in, in addition to the red nucleus. Claude syndrome is a combination of Benedict and Nothnagel syndromes with involvement of both the red nucleus and superior cerebellar penuncle. Ah, the fascicular syndromes. These are so difficult to remember for OCAPs, but I personally really like mnemonics and I have some very poorly done mnemonics for these syndromes, but they really help me to remember the main symptoms that are associated with each one. Yeah, it's it's definitely easy to be intimidated by these um, when when faced with the task of memorizing them for a test. But just remember that they all have an ipsilateral third nerve palsy and contralateral neurologic signs. So it's just a matter of connecting which other involved structures uh, accompany the neurologic deficit and the, and the name. Exactly. So when we see an ipsilateral third nerve palsy and then some sort of contralateral neurologic finding, we really should, it should ring a bell in our heads to think about these fascicular syndromes. And so here go my really... Um, helpful for me, at least, mnemonics. So for the first one, Nothnagel syndrome, we know that it involves the superior cerebellar peduncle. And so we see the cerebellar ataxia in these patients. And I like to think of it as Nothnagel, so N-O for no. They are not N-O, able to touch their nose N-O because of the cerebellar ataxia. So just think that they're unable to do finger to nose N-O. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Um, then there's Benedict syndrome, which we already reviewed. It involves the red nucleus and the substantia nigra. So you'd expect to see those contralateral extrapyramidal signs. So for this one, I like to think of it as Benedict Arnold trembling because he betrayed the Continental Army. So he's trembling, and those are the extrapyramidal signs. And then there's Weber syndrome, which we said involves the cere cerebral peduncle, and that results in a contralateral hemiparesis. So this one's a little bit easier and more intuitive. So Weber syndrome, I think of being trapped in a web. So they are trapped, they can't move, and they have that contralateral hemiparesis. And then finally, there's Claude syndrome. And unfortunately, I don't actually have a good mnemonic for that. But I just think of it as the final one. And that one is a mix of both Benedict and Nothnagel syndrome. It's a lot to remember. Um, but just try to think of those mnemonics because it helps you to keep them organized. Um, otherwise, just um, do your best and um, we can keep going because I know that we still have a lot to get through. I like these mnemonics a lot. I might use them if you don't mind, because uh, I always have to look these up myself. So I know it's so hard to keep them in track. All right. So 
After the third nerve exits the brainstem, it runs through the interpeduncular fossa or the space between the uh, cerebral penuncles while still in the intracranial space where it can be injured by compression, blood, or trauma. The third nerve resides just inferior to the posterior communicating artery. And the junction between this artery uh, with the anterior circulation is where aneurysms commonly form. Uh, now, I was taught that because the parasympathetic fibers that control the pupil are located on the periphery of the nerve, compressive lesions preferentially manifest with medriasis. Ischemia, on the other hand, preferentially affects deeper structures within the nerve. And that's how you might see pupil sparing with ischemia, causing a third nerve palsy. Again, unless there is complete somatic dysfunction with pupil sparing, one cannot definitively exclude a compressive lesion, so neuroimaging is indicated. The third nerve divides into superior and inferior divisions, typically in the anterior cavernous sinus. Lesions here can often involve other cranial nerves, which run in close proximity to this area, including cranial nerve 4, uh, V1, V2, and cranial nerve 6. This is why a complete exam, including facial sensation, which is commonly overlooked, is so important in the assessment of any third, fourth, or sixth nerve palsy. The third nerve then enters the orbit through the superior orbital fissure within the annulus of Zen. Lesions within the orbit can also affect other cranial nerves that may also introduce afferent signs and symptoms such as vision loss and a relative afferent pupillary defect. Space-occupying lesions of the orbit can also introduce mechanical restriction of ocular motility, as well as may accompany by, be accompanied by external signs like proptosis. Wow. Okay. So it's a lot to digest, but I think it's really important that we remember the course of the nerve in order to help us with the diagnosis. And like most things in neuro-ophthalmology, I think that the reason why it's so uh, incredible to learn neuro-ophthalmology, but also so difficult, especially as a resident, is because of its close ties with anatomy and the need to really understand anatomy in order to understand the pathology that we see in clinics. So thank you for taking us through that. And listeners, don't feel overwhelmed. You can always revisit this episode or look in the BCSC and review these crucial anatomical um, topics in the oculomotor nerve. So um, back to our patient, let's summarize. We have a four-year-old girl with acute onset right eye vision loss, medriasis, strabismus, and pain with upgaze. So my first question, I remember asking you this, Dr. Geyer, when we were in the OR was, okay, but why does she have vision loss? So this was the, the really the fascinating part of this case. And really it comes down to fundamental concepts in pediatrics. And so in this case, it's important to remember that children of this age normally have some mild hyperopia. And in the setting of third nerve dysfunction and paresis of the ciliary muscle, this latent hyperopia becomes manifested through loss of accommodation. There are a few ways that we can assess for this. And the first is through dynamic retinoscopy. So in dynamic retinoscopy, we ask the patient to fixate on a distance target and then switch their fixation to the examiner. With this change in focus, patients with normal accommodation will e exhibit a change in the retinoscopic reflex from with motion toward neutralization that is normally rapid, complete, and maintained. This is what we saw in the left eye for this patient, but the right eye, which was the affected eye, showed no change. 
Next, we uh, performed a manifest retinoscopy. While the patient was viewing a distance target, and, uh, and we found hyperopia in the right eye and next to no refractive error in the left eye. Finally, we performed a cycloplegic refraction after administration of cyclopentylate, which unmasks any amount of latent hyperopia there may be. So we found that with that the patient's uh, refraction did not change in the right eye after cyclopentylate, signifying that her latent hyperopia was already unmasked by the third nerve paresis. Uh, by contrast, the left eye showed a cycloplegic refraction similar to that of the right eye as a positive control of sorts in this case. So thus, this patient had a unilateral unmasked hyperopia from her third nerve lesion. And when I held up her refraction over her right eye, it fully corrected her visual acuity, meaning that unmasking of her hyperopia was sufficient to explain her vision loss in the right eye. So I think that this was really one of the most amazing parts of this case, because first of all, it taught me to really conceptualize the different types of retinoscopy and what each type of retinoscopy means. Um, and also to think about the oculomotor nerve as more than just a motor deficit. So in her case, retinoscopy essentially revealed a right presbyopia, an induced anisometropia with no effect of cycloplegia in the right eye, as we mentioned. And then when we corrected her, it improved her vision. So while this was important to recognize from a diagnostic perspective, it's also important to consider the functional impact this would have on her moving forward. She has an uncorrected manifest hyperopia on the right eye only, which is why she has the anisometropia, and she can't accommodate anymore, so she has this unilateral presbyopia. So these, these concepts, I think, are difficult to understand at first, but when you really sit down and think about it, they um, bring us back to the anatomy that we've been talking about all episode and allow us to think of the innervation of the different um, innervations of the oculomotor nerve. So now that we have that all out of the way, our next question for this patient was, what is on the differential for a partial third nerve palsy? especially in our pediatric patients like our patient. Right. So in children, the two most common causes of third nerve palsy are trauma and congenital disinnervation. This is clearly an acute case and, uh, and, and acquired that was not associated with any traumatic event. So we must also consider tumors and inflammatory causes. At this point, I wasn't sure what the cause was. Uh, but I suspected an inflammatory lesion because, uh, one, there was accompanying pain with eye movement, and two, there was selective involvement of the inferior division, and which helped us to localize this lesion somewhere anterior to the cavernous sinus. We, of course, sent her for emergent neuroimaging, uh, a brain and orbit MRI with gadolinium, which was performed under anesthesia as well as an MRA to evaluate for the unlikely posterior communicating artery that she may well have had. The MRA was normal, by the way. Uh, the MRI showed asymmetric thickening, edema, and enhancement of the right ocular motor nerve distal to its bifurcation into the uh, inferior and superior branches. This abnormal signal extended into the orbit and was also associated with some mild fat stranding. 
So this lesion explains all of her symptoms and all of the findings on an exam. Um, on admission uh, to the hospital, it was discovered that the patient also had a number of positive serologic inflammatory markers, as well as a positive family history of autoimmune disease that we mentioned before. Uh, the final diagnosis was an inferior division third nerve or ocular motor nerve neuritis. She was treated with uh, corticosteroids, plasma exchange, and IVIG with no significant effect. She was treated with her full cycloplegic refraction with a bifocal in the right eye and prophylactic patching of the left eye to prevent amblyopia. She made some gradual improvements over the ensuing months, but ultimately required eye muscle surgery to correct her strabismus. Yes. And um, I know that you texted me a few weeks ago saying that she was doing really well during her last follow-up visit. Her surgery was actually also really interesting, but beyond the scope of this podcast episode, which I think already just has so much information, it's full of information on the oculomotor nerve and maybe during another episode, we can talk about the strabismus surgery that we did for this patient and other patients like her. But overall, this was really one of my favorite cases because it forced you to think about the anatomy and the function of the nerve. So before we go, I just want to summarize everything that we learned. The oculomotor nerve divides into the superior and inferior divisions in the anterior cavernous sinus. Lesions of the inferior division result in medriasis, ciliary body paresis, infraduction deficits, and adduction deficits. You should always think of accommodation deficits in patients presenting with an oculomotor nerve palsy and decreased vision due to the involvement of the parasympathetic fibers to the ciliary muscle like we saw in this patient. And then finally, identify and treat amblyogenic risk factors in children under the age of eight. So before we end the episode, Dr. Geyer, I like to ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Um, so uh, I'd, I'd have to probably nerd out for a minute and say that uh, it would probably be, I'd pick two people actually, it'd be uh, Torsten Weasel and David Hubel, um, who did the pioneering work in, uh, in amblyopia and mapped, uh, mapped the, visual, uh, the visual cortex and laid the foundation for all the work that I do basically on a daily basis uh, on amblyopia. I was a little bit embarrassed because as soon as you said their names, I was like, oh my gosh, who is that? Should I know who that is? Um, but how, how very pediatric neuro-ophthalmology of you um, but those are great choices. Dr. Geyer, thank you so much for joining me today. You made neuro-ophthalmology feel a little less scary and a lot more approachable. Oh, it was my pleasure, So Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time on The Pupil Pod. 